Hello and welcome to Pivot Points, the best of season one. We've collated our favourite moments from the first 13 episodes and they are here for you to enjoy. Episode one is with Ebony Jewel Rainford Brent, from Wounded to World Cup winner. And for another year after that moment, it turned out I had two prolapsed discs, pars defect, a lot of back problems which had been undiagnosed and, and why I say it's mostly the pivot point is because I think before that I didn't really have any inner steel if you know what I mean it's like the resilience I had was weak I hadn't been tested by life I yeah I think I thought things would come easy and I would just cruise through and it forced me to really decide what do I want how am I going to go about getting it and I had to really dip, dig deep so I think that's my biggest moment because uh, I think that shaped my vision now on life that I'm able to project and know what, where I want to go roughly and what I want to achieve and believe that I can go through it. So yeah, that's definitely the number one for me. But there's something called the cycle of renewal, which basically says life is going to, you guys might know it already, but life is, you kind of go through four stages all the time. I would say the first stage you get thrown into the doldrums. So that could be loss of a partner, loss of a job, loss of something. And it's kind of always a, a shake-up moment and you can go various ways. The way you get through the cycle is the quality of questions you ask yourself. So to get to that next stage where it's called cocooning, where you kind of go into reflective mode. When I was in depression for a year, putting on stones of weight and all that sort of stuff, I was asking questions like, why is this happening to me? You know, what's the point? Blah, blah, blah. And the questions didn't really lead anywhere. They didn't open my mindset. They didn't challenge me. They made me more in a victim mentality not taking responsibility or control for the bits I could, even though, you know, some things were out of my control. I didn't take control of the bits I did. So that cocooning phase, which is the most important, is about the quality of questions we ask ourselves. So when I got out of that cycle, I was asked, started to ask questions about what is possible. You know, my goals have changed. I, I still have goals. Um, as you know, I do a vision board. I've been doing them for years. But I think how I go about my goals has completely changed from... I would almost say the energies move from masculine to feminine. So my masculine energy was like targets, hit this, nail, 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 and push harder and drive through and be the best. And actually going through a performance environment like international sport, that's all everyone really cares about is, you know, high measures and sometimes to the sacrifice of your body, your mind, everything. Where I would say I've moved more into the feminine side is it's more about experience and feeling good. So my goals are less written down, like specific. They used to be bullet points and targets. <laughs> and now they're much more visual. And when I look at them, it's like, how do I feel? So the fitness was simple as in, I want to feel better in my skin. I feel like I'd let it go a little bit too many Proseccos. So how I went about doing that is just changing my physical environment. So I know you guys can see, but they might not be able to see, but I set up everything. So I've got my, everything's laid out. So it's easy to do. So I don't have to think, I don't have to be disciplined. It's just there. Like my yoga mat's out, my cycling mat's out, my weights are out. So it's much more of a flow type way I go about achieving my goals now, much more through feel. Making big decisions, especially when it feels like your whole identity is wrapped up in it can be quite hard. But leaving, and I made the decision to quit and it was tough and I had a lot of people saying, what are you doing? I got so many opportunities in different fields so I moved into the media because the timing of when I left there was an opening up for wanting more female sports people in commentary and in sports commentary in general and it was just it was a shift in the world you know it's great that people really want to see female 
voices, but it was someone I'd randomly met years ago that had remembered me. And then when I retired, her gave me a call out of the blue. And I think I've had a lot of experiences like that where you don't know where you want to go. It's very fearful to make a decision to go completely against what, I don't know, you've known forever. And that can be the biggest fear ever. And I was so like, I felt scared. It was like shaking all the time. But it's worked out so well that new doors in different directions have opened up. So, you know, my media career has, has gone in a completely different way. I never had a, a plan to be in the media. That wasn't my ambition in any shape or form. You know, working for big broadcasters, Sky, BBC, Channel 5, anchoring shows. I've just come back from Australia, doing World Cups in front of 80 or 1,000 people, things like that. I never could have planned that at all. And so I think that sort of experience for me has sometimes said, sometimes when you just don't know the answer, it's okay to just, I wouldn't say completely jump, but just go in a different direction. I think that's one of the things that scares a lot of us is if we only know one thing, it's really hard to make that transition. So I think that second one taught me about, I guess, having faith in the universe a little bit more, that things can pan out if you let go of what you're fearful of. If I'm honest with you, I think I could have powered down that path for years mostly not even realizing I hated it or too scared to jump out. I wish if I had, I know this sounds strange. I wish if I had advice for this, I, I think the honest truth is it's just about courage. And I would say that if you want to make that transition, build up your courage if you're fearful of it. Episode two is with Louise Blythe, Life After Death. But the part of diagnosis that also isn't spoken about is this relief. So I think if you're diagnosed with, um, well, particularly for George, diagnosed with stage four cancer, and I can only ever speak from our set of experiences, there was an element of relief because we'd known for quite some time that he was ill, but we couldn't quite figure out what it was that was wrong with him. Um, so it was definitely this, this feeling of relief, but then this feeling of fear. Lots of people in the cancer community talk about the language of the word fight, and it's quite um, controversial. Some people like it, some people don't. And I think that's because when you first navigate walking through this life-altering diagnosis, you want to fight it, but you also want to run away from it. It's this classic fight-or-flight feeling. So when everyone who is around you is telling you to be strong, it's so difficult because the one thing you want to do actually is not be strong. You want to just collapse on the floor and cry. And that was the part for me where I realized that lots of people didn't know how to be with what was happening to us because their their fixed narrative, as it were, was just, you're going to be able to get through this. You've caught it early. It's, George is a fighter. George is so fit and healthy. And there was almost like they didn't want us to even open the conversation to the fact that this was really quite bad. You know, he had stage four cancer. The likelihood of him surviving more than five years was 7%. And I almost wasn't even able to have that conversation with a lot of people because it made them feel scared. It really made me stop and realize for the first time ever in my life that so much of the beautiful everyday moments of joy and wonder had just passed me by because I'd always been thinking about, oh, what are we going to do tonight? What are we going to do this weekend? Oh, when are we going to you know, go on holiday here? And oh, what should we do next to the house? Or, oh, I really want to get this promotion at work. And there was always so much of the noise that I'd filled my head with because that's what I did. And then once all of that was taken away and there was nothing else to fill it with, which is kind of like what's happened to people actually in this coronavirus season, yeah. it made me just go, gosh, 
I, the only way I can live my life is literally if I live with the joy and wonder of my kids. And it is, you know, the words of the Lord's Prayer, give us today this daily bread. Like, look for today. What is here and now? Like, what is going to bring me joy? With grief, it's often unexpected moments that can be the biggest pivot points. And there's immense sadness that sits next to immense happiness. In episode three, we embrace fallibility with Rabbi Jeremy Gordon. And I got to the um, start line of the marathon and I can't remember exactly what it was. I think four hours is eight minutes, 30 miles or something. I'm doing it reasonably quick and I'm kind of running away, running along. And I get to mile 24 and I see someone who is also running the marathon and they've hit a wall and they're, they're sort of green and they're crawling along the curb and their feet along and they're sort of shuffling along like a crab and I said look I'll walk you over to the ambulance and they said don't do that because they won't let me finish which is absolutely right um and I said well I'll, I'll walk you to the finish and I put their arm over my shoulder and started walking and three thoughts kind of fired off in my mind very very quickly one was I wasn't going to finish the marathon in four hours anymore the second one was I don't actually care about finishing a marathon in four hours because it's a kind of meaningless goal anyway. And then I realized I didn't really care about all the other things that I'd been sort of accruing points like in my sort of nascent television career. And what I really wanted to do was to become a rabbi. Once life's stripped away, once all the distractions are stripped away and there isn't anything else, there was that clarity that you didn't have. There's something to do with coming out that, that my decision to become a rabbi and then to tell people and to own that enormous change to my life. There's a, there's a, it's a kind of it's a big process, but like nobody else was affected really. People had to change what they would, how they would sort of pigeonhole me, but like it was that was fine. So I think it, it's easier to make change like that when you are light-footed. There's a Jewish food called chulent which is a reflection on a, on, a, on a Jewish legal problem. You're not supposed to cook on the Sabbath day. So there's a traditional food that you, you put in a pot before the Sabbath starts. You put in the pot on sort of Friday late afternoon. And by Saturday lunch, it's cooked. So it cooks on a sort of a low heat in a sort of pressure cooker. And I, actually, I've often thought that that's kind of how I deal with complicated problems for me. I prepare things. I chop them into small bits, put them in a pot, and... And this is also an, an interesting and important idea for me. You've got to keep the pressure and the heat up a bit because otherwise you just go into homeostasis. You know, if you don't force yourself to deal with a problem, it doesn't solve the problem. It's, it, it often can feel like it's more easy at the moment to just get up and do the same thing tomorrow that you did today. But if it's not good, like you have to put the pressure and the heat up on that a bit. But if you take it up too high, you know, if you beat yourself up about it, if, well, sorry, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how anybody else responds to this, but for me, you know, if I, if I decide, okay, I need to make this decision in the next 30 seconds, that doesn't work for me either. That it, it helps me to kind of get the heat to a place and then have a certain faith that I'll work this thing out. Another, just another story that I remember. I remember being at school and I remember we had a visit from this uh, guy who was looking to start a karate class on Wednesday lunch or something, you know, and he came in and he did this demonstration in front of the whole school. And I must have been 13, 14 at the time. And he 
um, he got the captain of the, the rugby team at the school to punch him in the stomach. And he did it twice. And the first time he did it, he sort of did all this sort of, you know, strong breathing and, and, and you can sort of grunting and you could feel him stealing up his stomach and he took the punch like an oak. And then he got the guy to do it again. And he took the punch in a sort of Tai Chi inspired way. And the punch never quite landed. Like the, the tree sort of, sort of folded with the change. And um, I've always been struck by that. I mean, you know, that, that's, uh, 35 years ago at least now and i still remember sort of watching that and just thinking that that's the smart way to deal with change synagogue rabbinic leadership you need to simultaneously be in front of everybody because you need to kind of point the direction out you need to walk alongside people because people don't want someone who thinks that they're above and beyond everybody else and then you need to walk behind people because you're continually having to catch people who are falling and stumbling and that is magnificent in episode four we meet the enlightened addict thomas woody woodland uh, i was reflecting on these pivot points and what struck me was that from the outside they probably look quite different to how they felt on the inside so i'm sure all my friends notice when i quit drinking drugs uh, because I was no longer out partying with them. But but actually, when I look back on it, the, the pivot happened much earlier. And, and I went, <laughs> I was actually talking to a friend from, from business school on Sunday night, and, uh, and we were in Peru together. And on, on, on that trip, the business school trip, I'd said that I wasn't going to drink. And oh god, the wheels came off. <laughs> and that was in, in like May 2016. And um, and 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 as the wheels came off there, I I also booked a holiday with with one of my best mates from school to Ibiza at the end of the summer. And the wheels came off again there, and the writing was on the wall. I mean, it was. I, I knew, I knew I had a problem. I knew that uh, that it, it was either total abstinence or or just this was just going to go on and on, and and it did go on and on for a for a while until early 2017. But that's for me the pivot was was the cause and not the effect. If you see what I mean, it was just the latest in a in a series of, you know, just not being able to control myself. It comes in a feeling, right? All of the things that we should listen to probably come in a feeling, actually. Because the feeling's the wisdom. The feeling is the intuition. The feeling is the spirit. The feeling is telling you something far more important than the, the, the kind of the constant mental chatter. And the feeling that I got was that, that just enough was enough and, and that I was capable of so much more than, than what I was actually doing, achieving, whatever you want to call it. I suppose what stops some people from recovering 
where others do. And maybe it's just having a sense that we are all resilient, that we are all mentally healthy, that we are, we all have well-being, that that we can all achieve something wonderful. We all have it, but some of us just either haven't got a sense for it, or if we do feel it, we misattribute it to something outside of us. So it's, you know, I get a lovely feeling and it's not, it's nothing to do with me. I've misattributed it to the fact that I'm with someone else and it's them that's given me the lovely feeling, but the lovely feeling can never be outside of us. The lovely feeling is inside of us. It's within. It's always within. So if we, if we catch a glimpse of that, probably not intellectually, at some level, we know it's true. And that's the catalyst for, for resilience. I was reflecting on this the other day. It was, it, you know, private equity was always a means to an end. And the end was to support a very expensive lifestyle that I <laughs> that was killing me, right? So it was a really shitty strategy for life. Let's have a lifestyle that's that's killing you, and uh, and then let's <laughs> need a job that makes you unhappy. Or again, I've just slipped into the outside in way. A job that I thought made me unhappy. A job that I definitely did not make me come alive. And to support this, these bad habits that were killing me. I mean, what, what an awful, awful way to live, <laughs> right? And then when I got sober, and so the, the ends weren't even the same. Like the ends had been removed. So to keep doing the means to an ends that didn't exist anymore yeah. was just like, it, you know, madness. Episode five is a giggle a minute with Lenny Ware teaching us table manners. My greatest achievement is definitely my children, definitely without doubt. And I have loved every single second of being a mother. There isn't anything that I prefer to do than be with my children or my grandchildren, really. Oh, that's so beautiful to hear. Is it? Yeah, yes. of course. Oh, I just loved it. People used to say, oh, gosh, it's half term. What are we going to do? It was, I was thrilled when it was half term and they were there all the time. So, Have you felt like that all the way through their lives? Yeah. I mean, there's been challenging moments that, you, you know, there's been very challenging moments with my children and it was difficult when they're you know being on my own really sometimes and so there have been challenging moments but um yeah I've never really there's never been a time when I thought I I can't you know this is awful it's always been thrilling but I mean there's ups and downs you know for example Alex was working on an intensive care recently and I didn't sleep I was doing pacts with God saying please just look after him so I was so scared he was going to get coronavirus and something would happen to him because he was so exposed being on the front line and if I didn't go out and clap every Thursday I thought that would be a jinx on it that something would definitely happen to him so 
all these things, you know, I was terrified. So those things that, you know, you get very worried or when your children are younger and they go out late and they don't come back. But I think my, my children were very good. There weren't moments where we had huge clashes. We always got on so terribly well that um, there just weren't the, the, these enormous clashes that, that, that I'd have to say, you can't do this or you're grounded. Just, there was no need for sanctions because they just understood well, there were angels and they did, you know, I found, subsequently found out, you know, Jesse was the biggest clubber in South London. Hannah, <laughs> Hannah was out all the time and probably trying lots of things she shouldn't have been. And certainly Alex was too. So they're not angels, but, you know, I, I, I didn't find it particularly hard them growing up. And the house was always full of their friends. What's it like ending up from, I mean, social work to hosting all these... What's- celebrities but but but, yeah but my yeah I might be a social worker but I wasn't kind of you know I did have quite exciting friends before that so I've always had quite interesting friends Mm. and who great fun friends so it wasn't like wow this is a different world to me I mean I've met fantastic people who are young people who are great that I would never have met someone like Daniel Kaluuya and Joe Dempsey, they were such a delight and young. So I've met, I've met people. And then Kiefer Sutherland sitting in my house and Mark Ronson getting extra ladle full of chicken soup. I mean, sometimes I think they wonder why I'm there and it's a bit odd. Jesse's mum's there, Lenny. And then other times it's worked really well and really embraced it. And, um, and of course, then we've had someone like Alan Carr, who's just taken the mickey out of me. I mean, I let him do it, but, you know, just been very funny. But Jackson's Row was just off Albert Square, and it was um, a really fancy synagogue, which was a reform synagogue. I used to, my dad used to drop me off at youth club there, because I was a big clubber unbeknown to my parents and then I walked around the road to the oasis put loads of eye makeup on and then go into um, a nightclub but there wasn't drink then um, and I used to go to the all-nighters and only stay till eleven thirty. but queue with everyone to be cool but <laughs> Manchester was a fantastic club scene so the music and everything and nightclubs and things like that were great yeah, fabulous. Sounds great. I love that he thought he was dropping you off at a synagogue youth club and you were yeah, going... And then I have to run back <laughs> round when he picked me up. Seeing a theme here occurring with your girls. <laughs> and clubbing. Yeah, we all like music, actually. I often wonder if I'd have liked folk music, would Jesse have been a folk singer? Or because mm-hmm. I like the music I like, that's the sort of music that she sings. I mean, her new album is so wonderful. What was it like then having, you know, having two children end up being in the public eye? They're just my children, really. So I don't think of them as being in the public eye, really. I mean, I'm hugely proud when I go and hear Jessie sing. And I'm hugely proud when Hannah is in the TV series. I mean, it's not, Jessie's quite private, so it's not like she's at everything and she gets noticed everywhere. I mean, some people notice her. She gets fed up a bit because people say, when they come up to her now, they say, love the podcast, love your mum, rather than love your music. Um, 
And she said, someone said to her the other day, oh, you're Jessie Ware. And she was just waiting to say, for them to say, I love the podcast. She said, oh, really like your new music. She was really thrilled. <laughs> if my children were to say anything about me or Jessie, I think Jessie has said this about me. I've given them the confidence that they can do anything they really want to do if they put their mind to it. In episode six, we speak to the incredible Holly Holden, mother, midwife, poet, philosopher, teacher, noticer, and so much more. Well, what's so interesting is I gave you those pivots, and then what I thought about was how things began to build before the pivots, and how you can only ever see that with hindsight. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you can only see Mm -hmm. how you were being sort of massaged by life into the pivot before, you know, from, 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 from the perspective of like, Oh, I'm looking back at that now. And it's been a massive passion of mine. And it's been a huge um, path of growth for me to study um, the um, Rudolf Steiner basically came up with this seven year life phase system. Um, And I've done quite a bit of um, biographical counseling. It's called where you actually look at, you know, literally 0 to 7, 7 to 14, 14 to 21, and you go through. And what I really love about it is it's, you know, I was saying to you both earlier, it's a little bit like having a midwife where what, both times I gave birth, the biggest thing I was grateful for was that somebody was in the room saying, I've seen this before. This is what happens at this point. Don't worry. Transition is really hard. You're not one thing you're not the thing you were before and you're not the next thing either. And it feels really difficult and sticky. And I I've felt like the biography system for me has been like an energetic midwife for me of not only bringing compassion to those pivot points that I've been through, but also helping me um, feel more centered in what's coming and therefore not thinking something's wrong, not thinking I've messed up and oh, I did that workshop, but now this thing's happened, so I must have not done the thing right. You know, it's like, this is, this is my curriculum. This is my holy curriculum. And this is, what's, um, this is what's unfolding right now. How do I work with it is a much more interesting question. Well, I, I just think genuinely and honestly going into our, um, our blocks to being present and allowing another human being to unfold is a very rare thing we don't often do it we we I hear so many people talking about their children and what they're really talking about is I would like to I've got a tulip bulb and I want it to be a rose essentially is what people are saying you know and I know so many people who have spent their whole lives and continue to spend their lives you know trying to reconcile what their parents wanted for them and who they really are and somebody very close to me you know, his father wanted him to be either a lawyer or a doctor. So he chose lawyer and he tried to go with that for so long, but his whole heart was in another direction. And I remember just hearing that and thinking, you know, that's huge because that's your father wanting that for you and not being able to be with who you are, what your expression is. And I think the only reason we would do that to another human being, have those expectations is because of conditioning, you know, is because of our version of love for that person is I need you or I want you to be this so that you maybe don't repeat my patterns or that my own fears 
come out in a way where I want you to be safe by doing this, being accepted and all those things. And so I really see, you know, my, my journey as a parent is like, because I'm onto myself as much as I can be. And I'm far from, by the way, like anytime I talk about parenting, my first thing I say is like, just do yourself a favor and do not project anything onto me about being an excellent but because nobody's an excellent parent we are imperfect loving showing up parents I believe those of us who are conscious and the minute you think you're a brilliant parent is probably I read a Zen teacher once who said the minute you think you're a brilliant teacher uh, a parent um you know be on to yourself because that's apart from anything it changes week to week what's required from you you know Again, I would say that the actual pivot point was becoming a mother and getting married and all the things that happened at the end of my 20s. But what happened just before that was quite something for me. Um, And again, I'm really talking about this in service of anyone listening, just kind of beginning to look back at these turning points and sort of almost feel the lovedness that exists around them when we look through that lens, like can I see how I was being loved into the next phase of my life, even if it felt abrupt or difficult or whatever it was? Sort of joyful mini funeral or something. I mean, I love, I love, I say that because I love, um, sounds like such a strange thing to say, but I do love the opportunity of funerals. I think they're very beautiful healing points. And um, I held my grandfather's funeral and I know what their potential is if you bring proper consciousness to them. And at the beginning of this collective COVID thing we're in, it was funny because everybody else was saying, don't worry, we'll be running towards each other in the fields in a few months. And I was like, no, no, I need to hold an inner funeral. And that's what I did. And it was really painful, but it was really important that I let a load of stuff go because I could feel that it was a proper pivot point. And I still feel that's what it is. And it doesn't mean that there's something scary or bad, but it does mean that in order for the new to grow, for a new way of being to come about, we have to feel and grieve and release the old. One of the best things I ever heard, Pema Chodron said once, life is like traveling on a train backwards. And I just thought it was so beautiful because it's so true. It's like suddenly something's there. That's how it feels. You know, when you're, I, I can't travel on trains backwards because I feel really, really ill. So I always have to travel forwards. But if you travel backwards, it's like suddenly there's this new landscape and it just comes and it comes and it comes. And in a way, that's what life is like. And I think if we can understand our life phases and our pivot points a little bit better by hearing other people's, we can not only look back and go, oh, I can make a little bit more sense of that. And I can wonder about maybe there is a loving force behind these shifts maybe there is a guiding hand you know rather than it's all random or I did something wrong or something wrong in me caused something bad to happen you know even friends of mine who've actually had COVID for all of this time and they're really really suffering people have made them feel uh, people around them in their communities have made them feel for example that they have done something wrong or they maybe didn't have enough immunity or all these little subtle ways that we get made to feel Mm. um, bad and often by weirdly the conscious communities we're in. 
well, maybe we're meant to be in a in a trans a transition and a transformation. And I I know that something has to die for something to be born. I know that I've seen it enough times, and that's what pivot points are in a way. Pivot points are an old way of being is dying, and a new way of being is 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 emerging. And and the problem is is that we don't know how to have a conversation or be in transition. We don't know that because there are not enough midwives who are speaking on a massive scale to say to people, hey, this is what transition feels like. When you're giving birth and you go into transition, you feel, you know, women say things like, you know, women in a hospital setting will say, can someone call me a taxi? I'm going home. I'm not doing this. I can't. But there's someone around who says, oh, I've heard a hundred women say that. That's really normal. I'm going to get you a cup of tea or let's have a glass of water this is what's happening in your body. Uh, or that might be too wordy for a birthing woman. I know it would be for me. Um, but there's somebody saying, this is what's happening. This is a pivot point. You're not who you were before. I also had to grieve when I became a mother. I had to let go of who I was. And I suddenly felt like I'd been sort of washed up on this island and holding this tiny human I, who I was responsible for. And I remember we drove her home from the hospital and, and both Robert and I were like, are we really allowed to drive her in the car? Like, you know, <laughs> what, you, like nothing made any sense in the same way anymore. And in order for us to give ourselves to that, we have to be in a process of releasing what was, you know? So I think that's why I think it's really beautiful that you're both in this conversation about pivot points, because we, I think we need to talk about them. Today, I asked my body what she needed which is a big deal considering my journey of not really asking that much. I thought she might need more water or protein or greens or yoga or supplements or movement. But as I stood in the shower reflecting on her stretch marks, her roundness where I would like flatness, her softness where I would like firmness, all those conditioned wishes that form a bundle of never quite rightness, she whispered very gently, could you just love me like this? Hold on to your freaking hats, people. Episode seven was redesigning your life with Jason Goldberg. And somehow I didn't get in the moment that the, the end dish should be comprised of ingredients that contribute to that end dish. Right. So if I want to make a Mexican dish, I don't put French ingredients in it and then expect that a Mexican dish comes out the other side. Right. But that's what I was doing. I was saying, oh, I want to be happy. So I'll put a bunch of stress in my life so that I can be happy. I mean, it, does, it's, it sounds ridiculous when you zoom out and look at it. But this is what we think we say. And I see this all the time from people that are so well-meaning and so lovely who say, you know, well, I work 80 hours a week at a job that I hate so that my kids can can do whatever it is they want in the world one day. Mm. Like, but you're, you're setting the example for them that the way you have a life that you want is to live a life that you hate. And so th that kind of mismatch there was something I wasn't aware of. I always thought that it was going to be the next thing was going to be the thing that finally brought me to a place of peace. And now I flip it around where, and this is a, a daily practice for me, is I am trying to, uh, as as often as possible, and I, and I don't do it perfectly, and, and, and you're not supposed to do it perfectly, you're not meant to do it perfectly, it's unrealistic to do it, to think you can do anything perfectly, um, besides being perfect, is uh, <laughs> that, that every day I wanna remind myself or observe myself or check in with myself 
to see what I'm making the center of my universe that day. Because anything that I make the center of my universe, I'm going to have anxiety about because it defines who I am. So if my business is the center of my universe, I have no choice but to be anxious about that because I don't want it to leave. I don't want it to go away. If love and relationships is the center of my universe that I need to grasp onto and take seriously and make significant everything in that realm of my life or it will go away. And so the, the practice for me every day is how can I loosen my grip on all these things that are great that I love. Sure, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited and looking forward to falling in love again. I'm, I love growing my business. I love doing all these things. And the more significant I make them, the more anxiety I will have about keeping or attaining or acquiring or possessing those things. And there are still times where I will, I'll have to purposefully tell myself, for example, this is a perfect example. There will be times where I will uh, jump on the scale. Well, I don't jump on the scale. That would be dangerous and probably break it. But when I step on the scale and maybe I've gained two pounds, whatever that is in stones or kilos, uh, I, I, let's say I gained two pounds. There is sometimes a voice in my head that goes into uh, future focus catastrophe that says, oh, there you go. You're on your way. You're going to gain back all 130 pounds that you lost literally for two pounds. Like it, it's the, it's the smallest thing in the world. And so I have to have a practice for myself where it's not about, um, and this ties into the anger thing that I'll talk about in a second, that it's actually not about me trying to talk myself out of it and say, oh, it's only two pounds. Don't worry about it. That's not the issue. The issue is that I think that I won't love myself or I won't be lovable if I gain the 130 pounds. That's the actual problem. So it's actually not anger that I ever experienced. It was actually fear, right? Anger is a much more acceptable version of fear, especially for men, but, but for everybody, but especially for men who are told that you're not allowed to be afraid and you're not allowed to show emotion and you have to be tough and strong. That anger is great because anger looks like a form of strength. It's not, uh, but it looks like it. And so I have to be in this practice where even if I have a moment of anger, which definitely still happens, and I definitely will start judging myself about it. If I have a moment of anger and I, and I have an outburst that I, I don't particularly like, and I say, oh my God, you're becoming that person again. You're going to be that angry person. Or I step on the scale and I gain two pounds. Oh my God, you're on your way back to 330 pounds. That's when I have to slow down and say to myself, and I'll look in the mirror and say this, and I don't care how weird it feels when I do it, I'll do it. I'll look in the mirror. I'll look myself directly in the eyes and say, Jason, if you gain back every single pound that you lost, I would still love you. And so if I'm not afraid of my feelings, if I can say to a feeling that comes up like sadness or like anxiety or like stress or, or whatever it is, if I can say like, it's cool, I see you, like you're allowed to be here, it's okay. And I don't need to make you a relevant part of my life, right? So one of my mantras is present, but irrelevant, right? And I will sometimes just sit there in silence and repeat this in my head, present but irrelevant, obviously it'll be silent, present but irrelevant, present but irrelevant. And the, the metaphor in my head that I picture is like, if I'm driving a car and there's somebody in the passenger seat and they are the most sad or depressed or angry or judgmental or, or you know, fearful person in the world, the car still operates the same way. No matter how sad they are, the steering wheel still works the same way. No matter how angry they are, the, the brake pedal and the gas pedal work the same way. So, so my feelings can be with me. They can be in the passenger seat and it doesn't have to affect the way I operate in the rest of my life, right? So that's, that's present but irrelevant is, is what I try to practice when those things come up. When you are, are showing up in a place of service to the world, the world wants to support you in return, right? I gave so much service to that company. I always did my best to, to really be a stand for everyone's greatness and to do what I could to make everybody else uh, even better at what they were doing. And the reflection I got back from my boss was, 
you're meant for this and I'll do anything I can to support you. Um, it taught me that. It taught me also that sometimes I got to lean into my self-trust because all of my evidence shows for all of us, not just for me, every single one of us, as much as the, the thoughts get in our head that say, you can't do this, you're not smart enough, you're not uh, rich enough, you're not connected enough, who are you to be doing this? Maybe you're not cut out for this. All these stories that we have, which we all have them, all we actually have evidence of in our lives, if we take a look back, is that there's nothing we've been through that we haven't gotten through. Because we're here, like literally right now, there is not one thing either of you have been through that you haven't gotten through because we're sitting right here. And so the evidence shows me that when push comes to shove, um, when things need to happen, I will fucking figure it out. I'm way better in crisis and I'm way better in uncertainty than I think I am. I have no frame of reference for certainty in any point of my life. And yet I keep searching for it. And so what this situation really taught me was that I can stop looking for certainty because it doesn't exist. And I have evidence that only shows me from the day I was born to this current day that we're in, there's nothing I've been through that I haven't gotten through. And I can lean more into that self-trust to take whatever action I want to take. In episode eight, we learn about all things miscarriage and menopause with the incredible Jess Rad. You know what? I am I am more in tune with my body. I think I, I do think I've got a way to go and I see other people that are better at it and I go yeah I want to be like you <laughs> that can live lives by their menstrual cycle like so little is still really known about our hormones and I think it's because we've got a lot of men at the top of science and medicine and it doesn't they always doesn't affect them in the same way and so well how do you send a woman home to go and have a miscarriage by herself without even so much as a freaking leaflet that's why we've got to get more women closing. I've got to close the confidence gap. I'm on a mission now. We've got yeah. to get women um, rising up the ranks into positions of power, you know. So Liz Earl, well, she's like an amazing well-being warrior now. She really does advocate for HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. So I, having heard this and done a bit of, listened to some other podcasts, done a bit of research, I kind of knew that actually HRT might be a good thing rather than the thing that everybody is scared of. Mm. So when this doctor said to me, we strongly recommend you go on it, I thought, well, I thought about it for like four days and then I went and picked it up and went, yeah, I'm just going to do it. Mm. And actually I suspect in the next, <laughs> I longingly say in the next five years, but other people will say more like 15, that it, HRT will be used as preventative healthcare, which of course is not how the NHS is set up at all. We just fix people when they're ill. We were extremely privileged to have Tal Ben-Shahar join us on episode nine, and we discussed the art of happiness and how to be imperfect. You know, the first thing that I found, and I think it's, you know, it's obviously still with me now, is that I had been looking for happiness in the wrong places. Um, And uh, I wasn't alone in that. Most people in our culture really believe, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, really believe, meaning they live their life according to this belief, that success leads to happiness. So I thought if I win this squash championship, then I'll be happy. If uh, I get into this school, then I'll be happy. If I make so much money, that is the answer. Um, Or find this relationship, you know, get together with this person, then I'll be happy. And um, all these things are, are great. You know, I'm not against, uh, 
you know, working hard and, and getting into a good school. I'm not against, of course, you know, finding, you know, the, the, the right match, uh, so to speak, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm not against uh, a professional success. However, these are not the things that will lead us to happiness. And in fact, the belief that they will is a source of much unhappiness. You know, um, very often, speaking of uh, pivot points, um, I, I give my students the, the following thought experiment, which many, maybe, probably, a few years from now, will no longer be a thought experiment. It will be real. You know, what if you had a machine that you could go into, and as a result of it, simply uh, be happy? So you may have just broken up from the love of your life, but you go into that machine and you'll feel great uh, as, as a result. You may uh, have uh, uh, lost a job. You know, your future may be unclear. You just go into that machine and you'll feel great. You know, it's a little bit, uh, I don't know if you've um, seen um, uh, one of Woody Allen's movies where he has the orgasmatron. <laughs> machine you go into and you come out with, you know, your hair is all over the place and you're happy. So um, anyway, something like this. And, and, and it's not, you know, I'm saying it's a thought experiment. In the future, it could very well happen when we're able to manipulate uh, the neurons and, um, and, 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 and really experience happiness where we felt sadness or even depression or anxiety before. Now, what if you had that machine? Is that a good thing? And, you know, most people say, yeah, you know, especially people who are going through a difficult time. However, I then ask the second question. I say, look back on your life. When, think about the times when you learned the most, when you really grew uh, the most, the most important experiences of your life. And what almost everyone would say is that all of these points, or at least the majority of these points, were difficult experiences that we learned from. So, it's not necessarily a good thing if we could do away with um, this pain, this suffering, um, this dis-ease, um, because these are important uh, learning experiences. So psychologists talk about two types of perfectionism. perfectionism. They talk about adaptive and, and maladaptive perfectionism. Adaptive perfectionism is being responsible, uh, getting things done. You know, being true to your word, you know, having integrity, um, uh, working hard. So, so this is the adaptive form of, of perfectionism, and, it, and it's great. You know, this is not something I want to, I want to, I want to give up. Um, and I don't think any person who has, you know, has these characteristics, and there are many people with these characteristics, want to give them up. You want to celebrate them, and 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 you and you should be proud of them. Maladaptive perfectionism is the intense and debilitating fear of failure. It's, um, it's, it's getting to a point where you're so afraid of, fa of failure that you stop trying. It's getting to a point where you're so afraid of deviating from the straight and narrow that you spend your whole life putting up a facade and an image so that people can th see through it so that they think that you're perfect. Um, it's being defensive to the point of uh, pushing people off who dare, um, who dare um, criticize you because if they criticize you, it means you're not perfect. And that's a deviation from the straight and narrow, from that image and facade that is so important for you to, to uphold. 
perfectionism is painful. It's painful for the individual experiencing it. It's painful for people who are around, especially people who have intimate relationships with, with that person. Again, there's no glory or, uh, or, um, um, or beauty or romanticism in uh, maladaptive perfectionism. So what happens when you don't have that stick of external validation? What happens when you don't have that stick of, uh, of you're not good enough? Here is what happens. Initially, and again, I'm talking about uh, personal experience and also from having spoken to many people who have gone through or are going rather through this path. Uh, initially, there is confusion. Why do I wake up in the morning? However, out of that confusion, out of that emptiness, which is often experienced initially, um, emerges the, um, the autonomous self, which is a, an, the independent self, and um, one's true internal, intrinsic passions emerge. And they emerge. It's not always easy. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, but we all have this, um, this spark uh, within us, this spark that, uh, that, that is about the things that we're truly, truly passionate about. And uh, we just need to, um, we need to nourish it and cultivate it. Unfortunately, so many people um, don't um, ignite that spark because of um, uh, extreme concern over what other people think we should do or what other people think um, that spark is or what other people think our fire is. You know, it's, it's, it's ours and ours alone. And some people may see it, and some people, especially people who care about us and know us. Uh, but ultimately, we have, to, um, we have to find it ourselves. I think the thing that stops people from making important changes in, in their lives, whether it's through uh, uh, an experience, um, a potentially formative experience, or whether it's uh, just because one day they decide to do it, is mostly time. They don't take the time. They're, uh, they're racing. You know, Marianne Evans, uh, a.k.a. George Eliot, has said that sometimes we run through life and um, we don't uh, see the beauty around us and we don't hear the voices of the angels that are talking to us uh, because we are racing. And these voices, and, you know, I mean this metaphorically, uh, these voices are, are there uh, all the time. These hints are there all the time. And uh, if we race through life, if we don't take time to stop, pause, savor, appreciate, open our eyes, um, reflect when we don't take that time, we just don't see these, uh, um, these hints. We don't hear these messages now, there's some great research by um, Richard Wiseman. Uh, Richard Wiseman is a, a British psychologist. Uh, I believe he teaches in, in Hert Hertfordshire. And um, he does work on the luck factor. And what he tried to do through his work is identify, you know, is, is, is there really such a thing as luck? Are there really people who are luckier than others? And he found that that, that that is the case and there act, you can actually explain it scientifically. And, you know, he's not talking about, okay, so you won the lottery. That is really luck and you had absolutely nothing to do with it. You know, you, um, 
but luck in the sense of just you know people who who seem things seem to be going their their way, and there are certain conditions that they are putting in place so that make them luckier. One of these conditions is that they observe. They when they walk around they see things. In other words, they don't just race past their experiences. They they observe. They see, and therefore opportunities that are there for everyone. They don't let them uh, pass them by unnoticed. They they capture them. They make use of them. The most powerful way of bringing about change is by bringing about change. <laughs> uh, in other words, it, uh, it's through action. Yes. So the way to deal with perfectionism, the best way to deal with perfectionism, is to put yourself on the line, meaning to create opportunities. For yourself, not only not run away from opportunities, but actively create opportunities for yourself, where you are um, uh, taking risks. And I'm not uh, talking about dangerous risks. I'm talking about uh, healthy uh, risks, which are opportunities to fail. Uh, at that point, I resolved to putting myself on the line, even if I'm scared, even if I really, really want something, and not getting it would, would devastate me. Um, I put myself on the line, and I credit that with uh, again not getting rid of perfectionism because, again, Karen Horna, you don't get rid of it, um, but with getting to a stage where it's manageable, it's okay now. I can look at it and and even sometimes smile at it. I say, oh, here is my fear of failure again. How interesting. Oh, here is my defensiveness again. Um, fascinating. Um, but to get to that. And to continue on that path, because as I said, it's not a point you get to; it's rather a path, a journey that you uh, that you take. Um, failure is critical. In episode ten, we had our first MBE, Sarah Castro, join us, and she talks to us about the Black Jewish experience. I would love to get on a call with Wiley, just to share with him as a Jew of colour, you know, as a black Jew, why his comments were so hurtful and how he put a target on my back. He literally put a target on my back. From a Jewish perspective, um, I've got a target on my back as a Jew and I've also got a target on my back as a person of colour. And he rubbed it in. And I'd love to have that conversation with him so that he can fully understand just how harmful and divisive his language was that particular weekend. Episode 11 was with our anonymous friend who talked to us about being stalked. I felt over the last few weeks that nothing's really changed from the day that a man tied a woman to a chair and put her in the river to see whether or not she would drown. We, we're just, we're being challenged. In, so we, there is no way we can survive this. Um, and nothing's changed. It just now happens in a very, in a very different way. The, the, I first heard from the CPS that they weren't prosecuting him. It was probably maybe a month, six weeks ago. And it was just, I was just obviously re-traumatized all over again, had no understanding. So I had to go and do lots of research and uh, look at different laws. And I had to... Um, create an appeal and I had lots of wonderful people helping me um, talking me through all of the things that an appeal should contain and then I realized that I was creating my own trauma it was all me 
the stalker isn't sending me messages anymore. The police have done everything they can. My amazing hero detective has done everything that he can. The CPS, as, as corrupt as their system is in not helping women when they need it, they are following the rules. So I'm now doing this to myself. And, and this is when you have to completely change your mindset and go, okay, how do I live my life now? What am I grateful for? Um, I'm, I'm actually, I feel very lucky now that this was my problem because I truly believe that everybody in the world has a war to fight, whatever it is. And of all the wars that people have to fight, this isn't one of the worst. By far, so I'm I'm grateful um, that that I that I'm that I see this world and that I see that something does need to be done. And while I'm not capable of changing anything myself. I can do my bit if I've done something that can be of help to somebody else then then there was a reason for it and I also like to think that this is possibly like maybe this was the best case scenario of my life I don't think anybody ever thinks that you know like Maybe there was another path I could have taken that would have been much worse than this. Maybe the other thing that could have possibly happened to me wouldn't have been something that I could have survived. So I think that maybe you have to, I have to be grateful that I am as okay as I am. I don't know the answer to how you stop treating a stalker like a criminal and start treating them like a mentally ill person who severely needs some help before they do a severe injury to themselves or somebody else. Lily Allen, um, I, I, I'm sorry, Lily, if you're listening, I'm sure you're not, but I'm pretty sure that Lily Allen's stalker was not arrested until she woke up and he was stood at the end of her bed. And then they charged him with breaking and entering. But how little value do women's lives have that breaking and entering is more is more severe a crime in episode 12 we had the privilege of speaking to kira charteris and hearing her experience of being raped the episode is called friend then foe acquaintance rape i felt unbelievably guilty and used to say a lot not just to myself but to to my friends and family as well you know that it was my fault because I was drunk you know I had allowed myself and put myself in a position where someone could do that to me and I used to berate myself for not screaming or running away or you know I I would say the questions that I was assuming everyone around me was thinking which was just like there was there was other people in the next room why didn't you scream why didn't you run why, you know, the endless whys or, you know, why didn't you punch him? Why didn't you, you know, we could go on and on and on and on. But 
the the actual the interesting thing behind is that I've more and more I look at it from a kind of biological point of view, which is this that my body was in shock and physically and mentally you don't react in the way that everyone says that you should or you tell yourself that you should in those moments. And what's so scary almost about specifically acquaintance rape is that it, it is not something that the body is attuned to fight or flight. It's it's not where you go. You go silent. You you get paralyzed. And that is why, you know, when I walked into the police station, the first thing they said to me was, rape is one below murder. That is what you were accusing someone of. Do you understand that? As the police said that to me, you realize you are accusing someone of something that is one below murder on the raw scale. You know, my brain went from fear to run out that door to actually, I tell you what, don't tell me that. Tell him that. Maybe explain that to men and they won't rape. But, but I don't need to know that. I'm here because it happened. And I have been suffering the consequences for a really, really long time. And so from all the emotion that I felt, I went from sheer fear to sheer anger in a split second where it was like, well, you can tell him that when you bring him in. And I really, really hope they did. I feel that is where we go so fundamentally wrong as a society is it is asked of us to not get drunk, to not wear that top, to not wear that skirt, to not walk down that road, to, well, we really, really should have um, realised that he was a bad guy or we should have picked up on it sooner or we should have screamed or ran or, you know, actually we should really just be teaching everybody, but in my case, particularly men, what consent is, what it looks like, the finite details of it, and what the consequences really and truly are if you cross that line. My truth was being sucked out of me and there was no consequence. The only way I could see to move forward and, and basically make some noise and fight for my life and make a statement was to go to the police and say, this is what happened. It needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be fought for and there needs to be consequences. And although I didn't make it to possibly, you know, all the way through to ultimate consequence, I, I, I really like to hope that, you know, the process of being called by the police and interviewed and knowing that your name and all that evidence and everything is going to sit there forever should you ever make another mistake again, is a big consequence. Now, the law doesn't take into the account that the system is completely corrupt and it has been built in a way that lets people like him off the hook. It's built with the biased for men like him. So for me, innocent until proven guilty is only fair if your system is fair. When I found out that um, my rapist wasn't going to be charged, um, I, I, I hated the feeling that somewhere in his conscious, subconscious, who knows, 
that he felt as if he'd won and I had lost or that there was any kind of sense that uh, I was ridiculous for thinking that I could ever get a charge. I needed it to be clear that this move that I had made and the outcome of it was completely and utterly calculated and meant something. So I I wrote this um, and sent it to him. I said, you recently received the news that you will not be charged with my rape. Let me be very clear. I have always known that this would be the outcome. All you have to do is look at the statistics. I did this despite that. I did this to stand up for myself and for other survivors and to make it extremely clear to you and all those you hide behind that what you did to me on the 6th of September 2015 has never and will never go unnoticed. More importantly, if you ever cross the line of any female boundary ever again, your name is forever listed with the police. They have assured me of that. I used to think you felt some kind of remorse, and for me that was enough. But your recent audacious, risky behaviour has proved otherwise. It was too much for me to manage. Clearly you and others needed a strong reminder. Although I do not have the correct evidence needed to bring the charge against you in court, I have found enough evidence to show you that you know the truth. The silence of those key witnesses who were there that night is just one big example of that. Your silence can no longer protect you. It can only last so long as the truth always finds its way out. I know you know what you did. I know those closest to both of us know what you did. We don't need a jury to determine that. Make no mistake, the deceitful behaviour not just towards me, but of those all around you, is inexplicably sick. I know you will live the rest of your life with the truth of your actions, and I hope this will inform your future behaviour and choices. But I will never be made powerless by you again. I will no longer be silenced. So today, do not sigh with relief or think this outcome leaves you free or innocent. You are not. This is just the beginning. And for last but definitely not least, we interviewed MP Tulip Sadiq because we went political, darling. It was also a lot of questions about the Jewish community. So we have a big Jewish community here. I grew up in the heart of the Jewish community in Hampstead. And I've been to Limud, you know, I've been to um, Seder, um, been to Shabbat dinners, everything. But there was still a question mark. So people would always say to me, do you think the Jewish community would vote for you because you have a Muslim last name? And I had to be really firm. I had to be really firm with people. And I had to say, don't underestimate the Jewish community. They don't vote based on last names. They vote for people who stand up for them and work for them. And I could see people looking at me like, does she know what she's talking about? But I know my constituency and I know the community and I know the people who live here and they're just not the kind of people who wouldn't vote for me because I have a Muslim last name. They wouldn't vote for me if they thought I was pro-Brexit, if they thought I was pro-fracking, if they thought I was pro-Trident. It's if I, had vote, if I had voted for the war in Iraq, if I had been in parliament, those things would have worked against me, not my Muslim last name. So it was quite a uphill battle in trying to say to people, that this isn't the problem, that this is the problem with politics. Like, you have to challenge the stereotype quite a lot. I didn't just have those problems locally. 
I actually had people from Labour HQ saying to me, are you sure Hampstead and Kilburn is the seat that you want to go for? I knew what they were saying, but I still made them wince a bit by questioning them. It's like, oh, what do you mean? It's the seat I grew up in. It's where my parents got married. I used to volunteer at the local Oxfam shop in Hampstead when I was 15. So why wouldn't I stand there? Oh, well, you know, the demographics. I'm like, yeah, what about them? And then someone actually said to me, why don't you go stand in Bradford? And I was very clear. I said to them, I've never been to Bradford in my life. I'm not going to stand in Bradford. But you know what they're trying to say? Huh. And this is this is the problem with politics. I don't know how much you guys are aware. My daughter went to a Jewish nursery. And the reason I sent her there is because I wanted her to understand that if you grew up in this constituency that we live in and grew up in, I want her to be the way that my mum raised me, which was like the Jewish or elderly couple who lived downstairs had us over all the time, Friday nights, all the time. Didn't matter that we were a Muslim family. There was a Christmas tree in our house in December because we wanted to see Santa Claus like everyone else, right? And when it was puja, um, or Diwali, whatever. My sister, my young, much younger sister, wanted to light the candles because they were pretty. My mum was very encouraging because we are Londoners and we're proud of the diversity we have. And I wanted my daughter to be like that. <laughs> so she came home and taught me a few Hebrew words. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> they have Hebrew lessons, <laughs> which was quite funny. You know, this half ethnically Bangladeshi, half English little girl coming and speaking Hebrew. I thought, this is quintessential. Yeah, this, London. Is London. <laughs> this is London. But this is what my constituency is like, right? We are a melting pot, as cheesy as it sounds, of every culture. What is it going to take to see more people like you in the House of Commons? When you look at the layers where there's a lot of power, so chief of staff for the leader, for example, the chief whip, um, the speaker who has immense power, the deputy speaker, the press officers, the people who run the election campaigns, the chairs of the select committee, which is really important. The select committees are more important than ever right now. And they were especially important when there was a minority government or when the Tories had a very small majority because they scrutinized the actions of the government. So select committees were very important. Not a single chair of the select committee is from a diverse background, not a single one. In my history, and I don't think ever actually, there's been a chief whip who's been of colour in any party, in any party, or a, a deputy chief whip, or obviously leaders, forget, forget leaders, but even things like people who run the election campaigns, it's really important, or the special advisors, or the press officers, or the equivalent of Dominic Cummings, they're not of colour, none of them. There's immense power in these roles. And people sort of forget this. Unless you've been in the party as long as I have, and unless you've done the many roles that I've had, you, the average person may not realise how we're failing behind the scenes. They may just look at the fact that you have me in Parliament, you know, you have Seema Malhotra, you have Marsha now, you obviously have had Diane for a very long time, you have Kate Osmore, you have lots of MPs of colour and think they're doing a really good job. It's the first step. But what we're failing at is putting people in decision-making roles in different layers of the party. 
And that's why I wrote that article. And like I said, it raised a few eyebrows because um, people thought I was sort of um, criticizing the party. But I don't want to be part of a party where I just sit there and applaud everything they do. You resigned your your position on the front bench uh, over the triggering of Article 50. That seems like a really significant thing to do. And I just wondered what that time was like and how it was to make that decision and stand so firmly for your constituents at that time and, and resign that seat. I've never regretted it for a moment is what I would say. And I wish more people had followed my lead because maybe we wouldn't be in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, 75% of my constituents voted to remain in the EU. I have 22,000 EU nationals just in my constituency alone. It's one of the highest in the country. For me, you know, I believe in remaining in the EU. Well, I believed in remaining in the EU. I think having a strong relationship with the EU us being part of the European Union was very important for us as a country, for economy, for trade, for health services, for everything, but also as part of my identity. I wanted to be part of a global world. I wanted to be on the global stage. I wanted the UK to be on the global stage. And for me, triggering Article 50 was going against everything I believed in. And at one point, I sat down and I thought about whether I wanted to do this because I came into politics to make a difference and to stay true to my values. And I really didn't feel like I was going to be true to my values if I went through that lobby. And you're right, I did lose my front bench position. It's a position I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. So it's children in early years. I'm actually back in the position now, funnily enough. But on the education team, it's a cause I feel very passionate about. It's also it's it, it was a chance to you could make quite a lot of difference in that brief because it affects so many people and um, I then I thought about it I took advice from some people some people said don't do it some people said do it and they some people said it's so early on in your career do you really want to upset everyone in the party by doing this because I was the first to resign and um, I was the first front bencher to resign I think some people followed suit afterwards but I was the first to do it And I did it pretty publicly because I wanted to make my voice heard. Um, So you're right, it was a big decision, but the constituency is really important to me. But it was also a personal thing. I just didn't feel I was being true to myself. It's in the same way on a lot of serial votes. I voted the way that I wanted to, even though it wasn't, it was a free vote actually, but I voted the way I wanted to. Has politics met my expectations? In some ways, in other ways, there's a lot more to do and I've got to got to do it. I didn't anticipate the level of abuse, I'd be honest by saying, that I've received. I didn't anticipate that there'd be this much kind of online abuse and this many death threats sent and like malicious phone calls and stuff. All female MPs got it, in all honesty. I didn't anticipate that. Um, and maybe I was naive not to, but I have to say I didn't expect it to be quite in the quantity that it is. So um, that's been a, that's been hard. Thank you so much for joining us for the best of season one. We look forward to seeing you next week, bright and early for season two. If you liked the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram at Pivot Points Podcast, Twitter 
at pivotpoints1 or email us on pivotpointspod at gmail.com. And if you want to work with us, we are Gabby Miller and Amelia Sabawal, and our details are all in the show notes. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.